Welcome to Why the Long Face, two old friends lifting the lid on mental health over a beer with author and psychiatrist Paul Keedwell and business consultant and so-called comedian Ollie Turnbull. Hello and welcome to episode six of our new season three of Why the Long Face, the special guest season. And we do have a special guest uh, who uh, Dr. Paul is going to announce in a very short while. Mm. But uh, until he does that, Dr. Paul. Yeah, man. Hello, sir. How are you doing? How are you doing? Uh, are you well? I've had a great weekend. Yeah, I fixed a fountain in the garden. Can you believe uh, that I would do something um, as, so almost As manly. useful and practical as uh, that. No, I can't. No, and it, and it, it works. It's absolutely for incredible. Now. Uh, and, and also, yeah, for now. And also, it's incredibly difficult to do. There's all sorts of moving parts in terms well, of getting you say the motor that. in the right place. Well, that's great, man. It's I'm, really I'm glad. Easy. I'm happy for you. I went for a cycle ride along the Thames today. Were you social distancing? I was social distancing, although it, the, the path does get a bit narrow at times, I must admit. Uh, well, that doesn't matter as long as you're not riding two abreast. But then the new guidance is try to keep two meters distance where possible. So I just stayed alert, which is the new advice right. that no one understands. But how can they? It's subjective. So that's where we are at the moment. We have to all stay alert. Yeah, just going into, yeah, double, just going to week, uh, just going to week nine now, aren't yeah. we? And I'm glad to say that we are seeing a clear downward trend now in the seven day averages for deaths. Um, we did see that uptick uh, that we mentioned last time with our residential care uh, deaths, which was uh, inevitable, unfortunately. Yeah, they've actually been backdated as well. So I keep the stats because yeah. I love my data, as do you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's all been backdated. So the curve is smooth. So it now goes back to as if we always counted the um, okay. um, those deaths out of hospital as well. Uh, and yeah, we are, we are in a worse position than Spain and Italy and France, in fact. Not per capita, I think. Not per capita, absolutely. Yeah. But 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 we're on a we're more or less the same curve, I'd say. I mean, there's no point in saying oh we're doing better. As you said, we're not coming down from the peak as rapidly, perhaps as Spain and Italy. No, we're definitely not. Although we've had a good week, uh, and, and we've good had is a, a very week. relative term. We've had a relatively good week, and it seems times. that yeah. that now the mood of the nation. I may be speaking a little bit out of turn. Is moving more from panic to frustration and boredom. Well, you predicted this, uh, mm. and I think you might well be right because it's a, it's easier to lock down than it is to reverse it because it's a, a mm. binary thing to begin with. And now it's like arguing over the schools, arguing whether London um, should lock down. Should unlock first. Should all four countries in the United Kingdom um, have the same um, policy? What is social distances? Why, why can you only see one person? Well, it, it, yeah, the because the R number is probably lowest in london or it is lowest in london at the moment yeah and yet of course london still has the same risks it always did of um loads of people commuting and sneezing on each other so it basically it's an it's a multi-factor equation that no one really knows the answer to and anyone who says they do is a maniac and no one knows the answer again as a symptom i guess of of us being 47th in the world or something in terms of the amount of tests we've done per capita um as that ramps up terrible stat yeah, as that ramps up, we'll be able to have the granularity. They'll be able to say, okay, R is this value in London. It's this in Liverpool. It's this in Glasgow. And they'll be able to do more of a zoning, which is what's happening in France, where 
Paris isn't unlocking as much as Carcassonne, say. I know about Carcassonne because I've got a little place there. So they, they're a green zone. So they are actually opening up all their bars and restaurants on the 2nd of June, which is going to make people in the UK feel even more frustrated, of course, because we won't be anywhere near doing that. Yeah. Oh, imagine sneaking out the, 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 for a, a lovely glass of wine, uh, Doctor. Just, yeah. just, just maybe just two of us, some olives, and watching the world go by, staring into um, each other's eyes. Anyway, uh, but, well, but, staring into your blood. Anyway, eyes. on the going back to this frustration and boredom, we we um, I was talking to actually a friend of mine in Carcassonne who was saying that she had a chat with a, a common friend who I suppose you'd say was always a bit of an alpha male. He'd probably deny it. And they're sure that they heard him say he was furloughed. And then a, a week later, they brought it up again and he completely denied it, almost sort of aggressively. And she got the sense that there might be a lot of stigma attached to the large proportion of people who are being furloughed in the UK and mm. around the rest of the world. And it set me thinking about the mental health uh, consequences of being furloughed. And I thought, who's an expert on this? And I thought of Tim Payne, who is working in people consulting practice at KPMG, although he's, he's thought for his own. And um, well, he's, he's, he's more than just working. He's a, he's a partner there, yeah, in fact. So perfect candidate to talk about. Yeah. So uh, uh, sorry, uh, Tim, I didn't want to undermine your seniority. <laughs> but first of all, thanks for coming on. No, it's my pleasure. It's really good to talk to you guys. So I just thought we could start by asking you really what you see going on at the moment in a marketplace with regard to furloughing and how you've been involved in that? One, I guess, quick caveat, which is most of the clients I tend to work with are, you know, they're at the upper end of the scale. So they're, you know, big, big companies. Um, and they and they tend to be more sort of traditional office-based organisations, um, bit, bit with a bit of retail, but they're, you know, often in the financial services sector. So, you know, talking about big banks, uh, insurance companies, those kind of things. So, the populations that we're that we're dealing with, the employees there, you know, they're people that tend to either go into a branch or into an office, maybe a contact center, a call center. They're not manufacturing, you know, um, no that kind of stuff. Um, so, and we've definitely seen, as you know, as I'm sure you would imagine, uh, a kind of a number of different phases of how big organisations are. Have responded during the crisis. Um, so you look mm. at their, their staff, and um, the, the early phase was really all about um, trying to find trying to find a way to keep going um, whilst allowing the staff um, employees to to work remotely. Um, and I, mm. I I found it'd be interesting if you guys have sort of experienced this with the other people you've been talking to over the over the nine weeks, but um, a genuine and real concern for employees and putting employee well-being and health at the very top of the agenda um, mm. and all of the clients I've spoken to really started from that premise which is this is you know our, our number one objective here is to make sure our staff um, are looked after right that's really good to hear because I don't think that's happening everywhere well I just uh, coming in on that um, I work in a, a similar environment to to Tim yeah and uh I have to say that my company um, has done pretty well. And, and and you saying those things, Tim, really echoes my experience in that we have um, two weekly comms with the CEO. Uh, my company is about 1,200 people worldwide. One weekly comms with the managing partner within within the UK. 
Uh, and then we have three weekly sessions, which are more casual things where anyone can join the call and uh, we just ask how we are. We um, play games mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. uh, and we send photographs of our kids. We have our kids on camera and it's a, it's a far more social thing. And I, I, I was volunteered by the managing partner to chair mm -hmm. those. Uh, and I do that three times a week and I enjoy it. And that connection with my uh, colleagues is surprisingly important and surprisingly nurturing and i'm getting feedback that that they feel the same way um so from from my perspective as a as a punter mm -hmm. as it were I, I i've had um Similar. i've had pretty good experiences in terms of how management have um stepped up i, I feel i need to steer it back though to the main subject because actually all you're still working and so the colleagues that you join in these um team building exercises online i am and i and i wonder if I, I wonder to myself how I would feel psychologically as a, a guy who's been in, in, in solid work for 32 years, how I'd feel if the company said, uh, actually, we can we can do without you for the next few weeks. And I don't think it would have a good good effect on my psyche, to be honest. Yeah, that's it. Also, I think that, Oliver, you know, your level of seniority means that you're unlikely to be furloughed. But I wondered if you were aware of any systematic attempts to contact people who low down the organisation who may have been furloughed? Yes, the the answer to that is yes. Uh, people who have been furloughed have been looked after, but to be honest, I don't know whether they continue to be looked after, and I suspect they're not. I think the emphasis right. is on the people who are still working to make right. sure uh, that they're informed. Firstly, and what Tim said about making sure that the health of the firm, the health of the people, sorry, and the CEO, the big cheese yeah. from um, Spain, will say, okay, three things on the agenda for this call: one, our people. Two, our firm. Three, our clients. In that order, yeah. It's a really positive yeah, yeah. message. That's I think. fine, and but I... they may be falling down because the the people that are most vulnerable psychologically at this stage are the people who are furloughed. Tim, have you got any yeah, experience true. of that? Yeah, I think. I mean, clearly, that a lot of the clients I speak to have have avoided having to furlough people, but some have some have furloughed, and you know, you'll know the stats better than me, Paul. That but there's you know, significant numbers of the working population are either now, you know, unemployed, working for the government or being paid through furlough. You know, it's quite big numbers. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, my experience is that the bigger organisations are who have furloughed staff are still prior, you know, they're, they're, they're still staff, you know, they're still employees. Mm. They're just not that's actually good. working yeah. at the moment. And that's really important. So, you know, they're not been made redundant. Um, they are still... They are still being paid, which is a, you know, I think we'll talk later about the difference between furlough and redundancy, but clearly that's a significant um, difference. Significant here. difference, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, they're not, yeah, they're not suffering the financial worries that someone who's unemployed would would have. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, they're not getting not the same full degree. pay, so, uh, but not to the same degree. Um, they're mostly getting 80%, aren't they, I think, of their pay? Yeah, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the rule. Um Mm. But it's up to a, it's up to a cap, so you know it depends what your what your salary is. You may not be getting that much. Uh, you might may, may not be getting the full eighty percent. Ah, of course, right. So you could actually have a drastic reduction in your pay. You could, you could indeed. But but you know, companies are taking trying really hard to stay in touch with those populations just as much as people at work. Um, I, I would say. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but of course it is. It's a different experience, and coming back to your friend who you you talked about in the intro, mm. uh, I think one of your questions is how 
why why is why is it um, such a difficult experience, and why might some people be more find it more difficult? I mean, I think part mm. part of the answer is the degree to which um, an individual has built their their identity around mm. work, yeah. um, which you know you know you'll find in in many professions and and other sort of classic white collar collar roles, you know, so. If, if your whole kind of you know, a large part of your life has been, you know, wrapped up in being the best you can be at work and really getting a lot of your psychological needs met through the workplace, it's mm. going to hit you harder, clearly. Mm. This needs for affiliation, respect, self-esteem, those sorts of esteem needs, I guess. Yeah. They're all really critical, aren't they? They're more critical for some people than others. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. I think that's right. Mm. And but 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 I think they also have... An impact on everyone you know so to some some extent and yeah. they kind of reference you know there's lots of models out there the reference model i often come back to um is is the scarf model where you look at um is that an acronym it's a good acronym it's a good one easy to remember we love an yeah. acronym on this on this show <laughs> so scarf did you say scarf yes mm-hmm. so you know the things that when you lose them in a in a work mm. context um you feel really um your neck feels cold yeah exactly psychologically speaking <laughs> was this a, a, a was this a play on the scarf <laughs> word there Doctor? yeah it was it's very psychologically you've excellent. got a you've got a bare neck you've got a bare neck exactly i don't think that's part of the model but um okay but you know what what do you what do you what do you lose what, what, what's in the model so status Yes, we say it's got yeah. that. Right. So coming out, coming into something like furlough, you know, if if your identity is really wrapped up in your work, you're going to mm. potentially feel like you've, your your status is lowered in society amongst your colleagues, your friends. You know, starts to get mm. you. Um, the C is really around sort of consistency. So, you know, most of us, not all, but most of us, like some predictability in our in our lives. Mm. Kind of like to know yeah. what's coming. Um, yeah, some certainty to... about the future and some and some routine. Exactly, exactly. And mm. and furlough sort of takes that predictability away because you don't know how it's going to last for. Um, and yeah. you know, uh, you're not allowed to do other stuff. You know, so yeah. And I venture to say it's 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 uncertainty about the future because you don't know. If, well, a you've got financial worries. Yeah. Um, but also, you don't know about the long term stability of your employer. So that's going to be nagging at you, isn't it? I totally agree, and and I think you know underlying all of this is you know the the the, the real spectrum um, specter of uh, you know financial uncertainty. Because I think mm. you know then you need to be reading the press, and you can kind of be starting to feel quite anxious about um, you know the, the future of your organisation um, and so on. So yeah, so that that's a real that's a real thing. I think that. The A is is kind of autonomy, which you you know you know Paul as a psychiatrist. You know we need a we we do need to, a sense of mastery, and that we can kind of be mm. you know in charge of our own destiny in some way. And I think furloughing really does take that out of out out of your hands. Actually, in a way that redundancy doesn't, because you if you make mm. make redundancy the redundant, then you can be at least you can start to look for new things, but you know, furlough, you're sort of basically sitting on your hands. You're in limbo, aren't you? you are. Is what we're saying, uh, what's come come up uh, time and time again, that's been quite toxic for your mental state is feeling out of control. It's a control yeah. issue. And uh, where is your locus of control? It's yeah. no longer internal, it's more 
you know, if you're work, working for a company, you got this, it may be an illusion, but you've got this impression that the harder you work or the more effectively you work, the better you'll do. Mm-hmm. And you're in charge of that. Uh, when you're furloughed, the, the, the locus of control is external. That's your right. Fate is completely determined by yep. the, the boardroom. It's, a, it's funny. The, the one thing that came across there, Tim, when you were talking about it, well, both of you, is uh, in a sense, furlough is worse than redundancy in that furlough, you're suspended mm. animation, as it were, and you've lost, like you say, all sense of autonomy uh, and potentially consistency. Yeah. Interesting. I don't think it is. Please I don't think continue. it is worse because I think I think it's you are getting paid, you know, ultimately. But I think mm. psychologically, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah good point. It, you could make a case for it being a bit, bit more damaging, if you like. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the the other bits of the of the old scarf model. So the R is relationships. So, you know, I'm sure you've talked before about the importance of social support on mental well being. Yeah. And, um, not it's everybody. It's a buffer but, against stress, isn't it? Um, having um, having social support, uh, yeah, and that yeah. extends to your work colleagues. Yeah, um, and for some people, you know, they they get the majority of their social support from from work colleagues not everyone of course but mm. but man, many people do and and just the the lack of that i think is potentially quite, quite yeah damaging. it's just nice to be asked or oh, how's you how, how are your wife and kids you know how's things at home yeah uh, and i guess um some companies are better than others at yeah. offering that kind of pastoral support and mentorship yeah, yeah. And that's gone i mean to an extent most of the time you sort of work you, you, you sort of work as a lone wolf don't you paul and there's a the patient doctor uh, relationship is the strongest one in in in, in your game uh, and that obviously has to be very professional you and me tim we work in mm. more sort of communities of people and you do get quite a, a bond do. with them but i suspect paul you you do as well with other clinicians i guess uh, absolutely um, um don't think there isn't um there aren't meetings and boardrooms involved in my job there's all that stuff going on managerial stuff perform key performance indicators all mm. that sort of thing too to be part of as well and some consultants thrive off that others just want to be uh, treating patients but i think you know the it's it's nice to have that actually it gives you a good balance and yeah sure every clinic every morning we have a clinical meeting with with the uh, multidisciplinary team so it's it is a community good I'm, i'm relieved and and also you do you do have chats to your consultant colleagues and you every month you have a big consultant meeting so yeah there is that that element to it that I would miss if I was entirely working from home. But so certainly Tim has really got onto something there in terms of what most of us get from our work to varying degrees is social and emotional support. And the evidence shows, as Tim said, that the more social support we have, the better we are buffered against stress, the more we can cope, we're more resilient. So you've got, yeah, um, one more letter left in the acronym. What's the F? I'm uh... I'm hanging on here. Man. The F is the perceived fairness of the process. So if you feel that perhaps you've been, in this case, furloughed unfairly, or you know some mm. of your colleagues haven't and you have, that's mm. really going to sting. Um, so there's a, a, a um, psychologists talk about um, kind of procedural justice, and that's what this is. It's it's and, and organisations need to be very very. Um, uh, cognizant of not just dis, you know deciding in a fair way who gets furloughed but also communicating the reasons and the and the ways those decisions are made um, so that people kind of understand that there is a 
there's some fairness in that. Um, so that's that's the right. That's the that's the last bit. Yeah, that absolutely ties in with uh, one of the main impacts of um, furloughing that I read about. From the, there was a report by the City Mental Health Alliance UK, and feeling undervalued and self worth taking a knock was a big one. Mm-hmm. If there's no communication from higher mm-hmm. management telling you that this is nothing to do with performance, purely about seniority, you are going to your self esteem is going to take a knock. Yep. Anecdotally, a solicitor was furloughed. She's very good, but she her reaction was immediately so why me and i want a full explanation and she got all kind of legalistic about it i want to know exactly why i've been furloughed and it did just come down to the fact she was the most junior person in the firm but that was a that was a failure of communication i guess yeah 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 i think that's that's really important i think the other thing we haven't we haven't talked about too much but there's obviously a wide range of um different circumstances out there and you know actually mm. Oliver, for you, you know, for you, and probably for me, this process, has, this period, hasn't been too, too disruptive. I imagine, you know, we're still doing the same work that we did. Um, we're just not actually yep. having to get on the tube, you know. But, you know, what what we've seen employees <laughs> mm-hmm. really, really focus on, and I think come to realise is, is, is the difference. You know, so it's fine for me, but what about um, employees who are um, in a abusive relationship or just an unhappy relationship? What about mm. um, dual working couples with, you know, three kids under the age of six um, with no access to child support? Um, you know, w- w- uh, you know, it's 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 there are there are very different experiences um, depending on your, your circumstances, which I think are going to drive very different um, mental health outcomes, um, even mm. if you're still working, you know, regardless of whether you've been furloughed or not. Uh, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Tim, in, in terms of, in, in, in a sense, we are less affected and uh, we must put ourselves in the shoes of people who are more affected. Um, uh, I was wondering, um, it, it might be it might be an illogical question, but as I get older, I start to uh, value other things more, like family and friends, frankly, uh, and doing things like this, to be honest, um, just doing something just for the sake of doing it rather than work and progressing up, up the career ladder. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, whether I feel a little bit less vulnerable to the psychological issues of the company rejecting me than someone maybe who's um, earlier on in their career still has that hunger and as you said before is more defined by their career so I wonder if I'm kidding myself or whether someone of a certain age I'm in my mid-50s now is, is somewhat protected from the vagaries of furlough simply because it matters less to them yeah I suppose you're more financially comfortable as well though aren't you um I'm further down the line yeah. therefore I have less mortgage that's right my kids are growing up and if if the worst came to the worst you could sell an asset couldn't you and kind of be okay i've done the planning because i'm anxious person as is well documented (laughs) (laughs) so i've done the financial planning and i know you're worried about me dr paul uh but uh, yeah i'll be absolutely fine (laughs) no i'm not i'm not yeah no i'm not Uh, yeah yeah i'm more worried when you try and go for a run or or cycle you might just keel over (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's absolutely no no planning there uh i will definitely die um uh, just a comment on your morbid obesity that that's all but uh, yeah i guess it's not very relevant very valid valid useful way it's always good to be reminded i've just come off a zoom call with all my siblings and uh, they help me remember <laughs> bloody fitness fiddles fitness fiddles they're like whippets up north actually yeah your older brother is, is skinny as a rake isn't he he's lean 
He's 60 years old today, my my lovely brother. And he is, yeah. He, he can run a marathon in wow. three hours. Ridiculous. At 60? That is incredible. That's amazing. Uh, three hours, 20. Well, that's encouraging for us all, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I think it's difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's um, in a different position to us. I, I was thinking about age, actually. There might be... a um, Probably your 30s is your mo most vulnerable and your early 40s, maybe. Because when you're in your 20s, you're sort of thinking, oh, great. I get to just uh, hang out and be paid for it. I can imagine mm. thinking that when I was a 28-year-old me. Uh, me too. But I can imagine a 30-year-old, a 38-year-old me on the on the way up career-wise um, might be a little Were bit you? more not sideways. Don't remember that period? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. Thinking about it incrementally, it was pretty similar to my... <laughs> 28 year old self <laughs> no but you know um yeah. just being knocked sideways a little bit i think and i would i would mm. definitely think i would need those check-ins from my employer just uh, keeping mm. me in the loop the same as everybody else not treating me differently to the people who are still working i think that's probably key so you don't feel what do you abandoned. think tim are we putting too much emphasis on that on age no i think i think well i think it's not it's not just pure age i think you know as paul was saying it's a kind of combination of factors of career stage financial security yeah. um uh, how much you like your job <laughs> how much you like the job uh, all of those kind of things but i think it does correlate very highly with age so i, I agree mm -hmm. actually oh, right. i think i think i'm surprised yeah no i think and i think the other population that we need to be worrying about um other than your i think paul you're right you're kind of you know mid-career you know, the, the mid-career people who are, you know, potential, you know, that if they did get made redundant, you know, and we're about to enter, you know, one of the worst recessions, you know, for a long time, then, you know, that group is particularly vulnerable because, you know, that it would be hard to get another job. And I'm sure that's preying on people's minds. So that is a that is a critical group. I think the other really critical group is, is at the other end of the scale, the very young you know, just coming out of university or college or school, trying to get right. into the labour market um, or just having started. Um, mm. Because I think, you know, certainly m many of the organisations I see out there, they're pausing their their sort of early talent hiring pro you know, um, uh, processes. So whether gra graduate recruitment mm. or, you know, um, school leaver programmes. Um, and I think we're going to end up, more of a sort of general societal comment, I guess, but I think we're going to end up with um, quite large numbers of, of people at that stage who aren't getting on the career ladder uh, in the way they would have hoped. Um, and they're such critical early years because if you miss out on those, you know, it's very difficult then to get back on. So I think, right. I, I suspect, I don't know if you've come across any research on that, Paul. It's not, in, it's in, not... those, in those particularly competitive uh, professions, I should imagine, yeah, those and... first few years are, are critical. I, think I mean, people do reinvent themselves, do retrain and yeah. do fine. But I guess they're the ones we really got to keep an eye on. Um, the people are just, just coming onto the labour market now and are struggling. Yeah. I mean, could it be that this this is sort of a mini generation of people, though, uh, and they're all, you know, they're all suffering from the same thing and, and it, it works itself out in the end? Or indeed, do millennials, and I suppose there's going to be something called post-millennials soon, do they, sometimes I believe that they see uh, this as part of the normal working patterns these days. You don't have a job for life. You have a portfolio mm -hmm. career. You make different choices and go in different directions. It could be 
may, I, I, I ask that they might be more resilient than we give them credit for. And actually, this will just be yet another variable they have to take into account in the in the in the slightly more dynamic job market than we were used to when we came out of uni. I don't it's know. Possible. I think there is. So the next generation, people are starting to call Generation Z, obviously, and um, there isn't that much research on, on them. Um, but there's a, there is there is a bit. There was a good Ipsos paper last year which started to look at some of the attitudes for, for that generation. I think one of the most dif- different, the biggest difference um, between them and the millennials was the sense of kind of much more fluid identity um, that they have. So both that both from a kind of almost like a jet you know from everything from gender fluidity through to you know personal identity so that that would support your theory ollie that um you know perhaps they are more resilient in this situation and are prepared to reinvent themselves and you know aren't aren't necessarily expecting the the um the career steps that you know even even the millennials have gone through i i was that is I was wondering if it relate. I wonder if there's another uh, aspect as well, which might mean that there's a better prognosis than we think. Which is that since 2008, there has been a pattern for people to have lots of what they call side hustles. You mm. know, um, so they're working for the man, but they've also got this kind of startup, or they yeah. may have their fingers in four different startups. You know, it, podcast like this one, yeah, which is obviously going to make us stratospherically rich. Um, but yeah, it, this uh, I'll give you the revenue figures uh, again. Uh, it's uh, let's have a look. Uh, April, yes, it's, it's still naught pence. Yeah, naught naught pence. Yeah, naught pounds and naught pence. pence. Need to hire a consultant. Um, guys. No, uh, we're doing it for the love. Um, <laughs> but does that does that make sense, Tim? I mean, I, that's what that's sort of, I get this impression, but maybe I'm just hanging around with too many London hipsters. No, it, or people who know London hipsters. It's really funny. We we were talking to a client bank, uh, investment bank, who were identifying kind of almost like a new risk category, which was people coming through, um, you know, young, younger generation coming through, but actually having other things going on on the side, which actually you're not allowed to do mm. under most employment, you know, t- uh, contracts. Um, and the risk yeah. is that you know either reputational that you start to bring um the the employer into disrepute or 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 you just you know um i don't know but so so it's it's starting to happen um uh, exactly as you mm. just said interesting and i think it is a symptom of the crash in the credit crunch in 2008 where people did have to i, I remember and the enterprise uh, investment scheme it really injected a lot of entrepreneurial spirit in our Generation said, I think, and they were very keen to to start up all these companies, many of which presumably folded. That's that's a natural selection of business. But um, yeah, I think it's led to a different mindset, perhaps, which may or may not stand them in good stead going forward. Uh, I can imagine the more resourceful of them really using this time uh, to plan their futures and really research and, and maybe network as well so that they can come out of this stronger i'm so impressed by the people who come out of university and are attracted to firms like the one uh, i work for very high quality people very self-starting very sort of imaginative about how their career is not necessarily vertical but lateral i think there's a um you know what did you do during the lockdown is going to be a question at um you know uh, job interviews to come 
Um, Interesting. Yes. Inevitable. Yes. You know, what what constructive things did you do or did nice. you just play play on your computer game for the, you know, the, the nine weeks? It's um, so gosh. Yeah. Because they, they want people who are self-motivated and driven. Killer question. Yeah. It's a killer question. Yeah. Well, sometimes we ask is what's your quirk? Uh, which puts off the the people who don't think laterally and uh, are are a little bit cookie cutter. And you say, I, I sometimes say, if someone's pre- presenting really strongly, what's your quirk? What's what's the thing that makes you a little bit different? And it's a really interesting question. Puts off a lot of people, but a lot of people you get to learn. Mm. You don't you don't get to learn about them. Uh, quirk might be a bit of a dangerous word to use sometimes, <laughs> but uh, generally speaking, you you get the reaction. I was wanting to ask Tim. Um, we haven't really talked about uh, things that can be done, and of course, you can't talk about your clients or even your own firm, but um, what can be done to minimize the impact of the most vulnerable, those people who are really suffering from a crash in their self-esteem, perhaps due to one or more of the SCARF um, criteria? What what, what are the things that you can advise or or firms can do, small firms or individuals can do to minimize the impact? Yeah, I I think it's a combination of um, two two things. One, One is the topic we've already touched on and you illustrated really nicely all which is the the quality of um, management and leadership and communication that's happening you know you can't you can't get past that you have to you have to be able to mm-hmm. uh, your, your your management population has to be able to engage with people not face to face you know through electronic media in a way which allows, which where people really understand and believe that there is empathy, that there is care, that there is um, interest and curiosity um, in in their situation, you know. And you know, not all managers are great at that on the best of days, face to face. So it is a challenge, and I think we're starting to see a different kind of, you know, if you do your, you know, you look, you do your talent review of management skills next year, you might have a slightly different set of criteria. Um, but but so I think that's one thing, mm. you know, absolutely continuing to communicate, but but communicate in a very empathic way. And the other thing, on the other end of the scale, is if you're working from home, um, how flexible are you allowing them to be? You know, is it okay that they work um, half days because they have childcare responsibility, and are you still going to pay them? That, those kind of things. Is it all right to take some time off and then log on later on in the day? Um, so, so I think the best com- companies I've seen who are responding are being both very supportive in their communication, but also very supportive in their allowance of flexibility in working practices so people can kind of, um, you know, adapt. Yeah. And, and of course, a lot of people are not going to change their working, their remote working when the lockdown is lifted. That a lot of companies m- must be realizing now that. They must be thinking to themselves, why am I paying such high rent and such high heating and electricity costs yeah, yeah. for this big office block yeah. when I'm actually finding that people are possibly even more efficient working from home? Yeah, that's exactly what So I said at the beginning, you know, there have been different phases of a reaction. The, rea- the phase that pe- most big companies are in at the moment is um, return planning. And exactly as you said, Ollie, earlier, you know, it's, it's actually they're finding it was much easier to, to get into lockdown than it is to get out of it. Um, it's more complicated mm-hmm. to go. But but also there is a real sense of rethinking uh, work, work, you know, um, and the office in particular. Um, 
those traditional big organisations uh, are in no rush uh, to get back to everyone being back in the office. And I, I don't think that I think I think that many will never go back to what they they used the ways they used to work. Um, there'll still be offices, but we won't be going in every day uh, like we used to. And the space will be used for different purposes. You know, it will be used for collaboration or it will be used for creativity and innovation. Um, and we will all be working much more remotely, um, much, much more of the time. Um, I, I have absolutely no doubt about that. And, and, and one of the drivers is economics, as you said, Paul, you know, why spend mm. so much money on the big office spaces? One of it, one of the drivers is productivity. And we've, we've actually found clients saying that um, their productivity has, has stayed the same or increased even during the lockdown period. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, partly it will be environmental, which everyone's sort of forgotten a bit about. But just before coronavirus, there was a massive focus on um, our, our environment. You know, the Bank of England was really, really pushing it and will continue to push it. And that, that on its own would have started to drive some of these trends, just not quite so quickly. So that's mm. another, you know, that's another factor that's going to. Um, it makes you wonder about big infrastructure projects like HS2 and how, yeah, uh, how they're going to, you know, uh, people's attitudes toward that towards that are going to change. Yeah, you know, I, I, or, uh, is it yeah. is it crucial to to take the HS2 to have a meeting uh, in Manchester, um, travel from London to Manchester, or vice, vice versa? Yeah, um, I, I've become a massive fan of remote working. I mean, I always quite liked mm. it, but the lockdown has, has cemented it for me. We've done, uh, again, similar work to Tim. We do we do workshops tend to be more technical on my side. Um, uh, and I'm thinking there's no way you can run a workshop remotely. It just doesn't it just doesn't work. You've got to feel the room. You've got to see who's bored. You've got to, um, I run workshops generally rather than contribute to them because I have no expertise whatsoever. Um, but you've not got to see how the, the dynamic in the room is working. But it's it's not true. You can do it. The, the, the software is there. You can have these whiteboards that you must mm -hmm, use, Tim, I'm mm -hmm. sure, where you can all contribute at the same time. You can prioritize things. You can have arguments and it kind of it kind of works but I, I, i'm interested to go back to what you say about the the importance of management empathetic emotionally intelligent mm. management and whether that can be uh, and we've, we've actually talked about this before the before the podcast tim haven't we the three of us as to whether you get you know 100 of the understanding of the communication from a from a remote even video call or whether there is something and i suppose there's inevitably something but whether there's a significant amount of information lost by having a remote conversation um as there is in having it face to face and i think you and i differed slightly in that i was i i, I got the impression that i thought the, the loss can be minimal as long as you have had some kind of physical interaction with that person in the past. Uh, but I think you, you were you suggesting before that quite a lot is lost in a video conference over a, over a physical encounter? I think, I think more than, you know, and Paul, Paul remember these stats from um, student days, but, you know, something like 80% of communication message is more nonverbal than, than mm. verbal. And, um, you know, if you're working through Teams or Zoom, whatever, um, the 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 visual is degraded you know it's just not as good as real life so um there's a, there is a small delay on on both those systems that you don't really notice but it's there and it start you know so it can kind of drive a, a sort of slight sense of anxiety that you've been heard even though mm. you're not quite aware of it um, you're not quite sure actually when you've been heard that is a big big problem with yeah. zoom uh, yeah. i think and, and mm. it gets worse than the, the greater number of people are on the call yeah. or in the workshop or in the meeting 
Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and 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 also you're missing up. I don't know if you can really sense. It's this thing of sensing when you can interrupt. Is probably it's probably more acute in the real setting than in than when you're just looking at a lot of faces on the screen. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Although maybe we're just unskilled in that environment and it will improve. I, yeah. Yeah, we're quite adapt to changing to new protocols. Yeah. And one thing we did have a, a, a doctor on last uh, in the last episode, and she said it's because you said a lot of it is lost on the visual link, and I think that's right due to the often poor resolution. Mm. And she was saying that in her consultations, remote consultations with patients, the quality of the visual contact is key. Mm. Having a good computer screen. With yes. the resolution, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and maybe, but I, I think you're right. You know, I don't, I don't, I think we'll adapt. And I think, you know, you add in 5G when that comes through, quality is going to get better. Um, I, th I don't think, and maybe the functionality as well, break off meetings yeah. and all that sort of thing would be easier. Oh, you can do yeah. that. I know you can, but I'm not sure how great the functionality. I'm not sure how reliable yeah. that is yet. Worked for me. Okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty good, or, or it can be. Yeah, I know you're suffering under um, a particular provider in London uh, with your. Uh, oh yeah, that's true. At the moment as well, <laughs> which is which is key. Um, it's a it's an interesting one. I think people will develop different ways of communicating as well to take into account the, uh, the remote nature. But I think you're right, Tim and Paul. I mean, you're you're both psychologists and psychiatrists between you, uh, and uh, there's, there's can be no doubt that the experts like you are saying things are lost. Uh, I I think I think one thing that will be lost and that people will miss definitely is the kind of um, and I said it before the kind of before you sit down to have the meeting there's a kind of how are you hi there's a there's an interaction that goes on and there's the there's the sort of break for coffee and the informal chats that happen then all that's lost with these Zoom that's meetings that's right you talked it's about it's all lost well you've got this other book. Your, your other book is about environment and how that affects mental health. And you're right. The actual physical act of getting your papers or getting your laptop up or whatever, walking to another room gives you a sort of chance to reset. But Tim, I know you were saying this, uh, and particularly in, in your job and, and being a partner at KPMG, you were just zoom to zoom to zoom to zoom with no no chance to reset, recontextualize. And uh, you're saying that was pretty exhausting. Yeah, I think I've noticed that with a lot of clients that... Um, there is a, you know, we're, we're probably still learning how to, you know, how to make the best of this. But at the moment, that you know, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, my God, you know, I was, my Zoom, my Zoom started or my team started at 8.30, you know, and I had no breaks and people just scheduling them because mm. you, you know you don't have to walk somewhere. But actually that, that gap that you used to have is where you would process what happened in the meeting, kind of just work out what you're going to do next. Yeah, it's a mental space. Yeah. Um, and that lack is, is a real, I think people get to the end of their working days at the moment, who are people who are lucky enough to still be working. Um, but they are very drained. And I think, um, you know, couple that, your environmental point, Paul, you know, you're also mm. not moving, you know, you, maybe you move from room to in your house to somewhere else, but you know, you're not, you don't get the, the, the train journey to unwind you, you know, so actually you, it's quite cumulative and i think that's one of the reasons why people who are working at the moment are starting to feel really tired by lockdown i think that's right i think we're going to see more burnout yeah. and then there will have to be a rethink yet again and employers will have to consider well we'll have to consider building in this reflection time and yeah. making sure people are having breaks 
Yeah. Is, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of workplace legislation, you know more about this than me, Tim, that would say you'd need to have a certain number of breaks in the day. I certainly need a lunch break. Um, I know Tenant who works in high up in strategy and advertising and she is doing exactly what you said, which is going straight from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting and she mm. doesn't stop. Yeah. yeah. And I think she's going to burn out if she continues to do that every day, day in, day out, Yeah, week and, in, week out. And I think that's right. And I think the, the more savvy people are starting to, so I know friends and colleagues who have started to put in you know, Zoom in Zoom meetings where they actually they haven't got any Zoom meetings, you know, so they're, they are forcing yeah. themselves to have yeah. a, a couple of breaks through the day. Um, and, and maybe they'll, maybe, like you said, we're going to learn how to get better at all of this stuff. And, you know, different culture or cultural norms are going to emerge and different etiquettes. Mm. And, you know, I think it's going we'll, we'll, to, yeah. we'll get better at it. I wondered if we were going to end up with, instead of offices, um, flexible meeting spaces where everyone in a team can meet face to face yeah. once a week once or a twice a week or three times a week can you imagine that and then it, you end up with a social afterwards maybe everyone goes down the pub once we're unlocked again yeah. or, or any other culturally appropriate place <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um but yeah <laughs> uh so so yeah i can see that i can see actually sort of you know the um coffee works and all those chains where you are effectively hot desking in a cafe mm. uh you i could see companies doing something along those lines does that make sense? I think that's right. I think the, the um, I'll, let, I'll let Tim answer this but I, uh, uh, as well, obviously. But uh, I think the actual space is, is becoming less important. You know, you used to have an office mm. and it was the company's office and those logos. And, and that would have a lot of esteem attached to it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct, yeah. I don't know what you think, Tim. Because you come from a very traditional company which, which had all that stuff. Yeah, um, although even before the virus we were starting to move towards more collaboration and less kind of normal space i think i think the thing that the thing yeah, that we need sure. to just be a bit careful about um i don't know if you remember the example when um for yahoo when marissa mayer took over as ceo there was a lot of publicity about it at the time because they had a very very work from home culture um in fact there were a mm -hmm. lot of people who who were there who had never been into head office um ever and and her her feeling when she took over was that there was um, a real lack of culture um, and lack of um, shared understanding of, of and bonds between people who are working there. And she mm. she took a really bold decision and she kind of said, right, we're we're actually going to all come into the office, uh, which was really unpopular and got a bit of a backlash. But I totally kind of see her point, and I think you know we're kind of okay at the moment through COVID because mostly we're talking to people we we already know. Um, but as the longer it goes on, you know, there'll be new hires, new employees who, you know, you won't have had time to build that bond up with. So I do think there's going to be a need for some kind of your space in your organization, um, which is branded and, and represents the kind of culture that you want in your organization um, and probably is more um, collaborative in nature. But I agree. I think we'll be going into it less. We'll be going into it for specific reasons. Um, you know, maybe it's for bonding, maybe it's for um, big mm. set piece communications, and maybe it's for collaborating with customers or clients or third parties or whatever. Um, mm. But yeah, it'll change. Mm. I think we'll end up with a combination of both, won't we? Ultimately. Yeah. But yeah, we don't know what that will look like yet. Yeah. yeah. 
Fascinating. Fascinating. I, I love all this new flexibility. Mm. You, you can teach old dog new tricks. I can sometimes have a great day where I, I literally get up late. I literally, on a weekday, I can get up at 8.30, even 9, be at my desk at 9.30, mess around and get bored, so do nothing. Uh, then take my daughter maybe to see her pony, which is uh, compliant with the regulations because he's livestock, a little <laughs> bastard. Uh, then come back and have some intense calls and then sort of slide into the evening with my laptop on my lap, really getting into some piece of work. And at the end of it, I think if I add that all up, I've probably done nine, 10 hours of work. I'm pretty chilled. I've seen the horse um, and I had a lie in, you know, I, I'm embracing it myself. And um, so everyone should just relax because Ollie's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Oliver Turnbull is fine podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm fine. Yeah. For, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry to hear your story. Goodbye. I presume the livestock's fine too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, livestock, yeah, hasn't had the virus and was jumping quite nicely today. The horses aren't, um, don't succumb to the virus. Not this one. No. They succumb to loads of other things, the bloody money-sucking bastards. Yeah, right. They could twist their gut. These animals, how did they manage to evolve, mm. right, in a situation where they can legitimately, spontaneously twist their gut dead? Mm. Wow. What kind of animal is that? You would have thought that propensity would have been bred out long ago, wouldn't you? <laughs> she pretty well would. That's uh, uh, 500 times a shot. <laughs> Spoken like a true Yorkshireman. Yes, you're illustrating the the trap we talked about earlier, which was you know uh, um, there are people in very different circumstances than us, right? So uh, you know, and obviously my and your Ollie, your our environments are particular because they're kind of big big companies. But I think there's the other, and this is an area I'm not so familiar with because it's not really my sector. But you know, there's another mental health angle here, I think, which is for people who are um, working with public, you know, so. You know, mm. retail um public transport uh anyone that anyone that has to you know by definition come into lots of contact with lots of other people that so some some people may be quite worried about that um right now um and yeah. mm. as we go through mm. the you know the various government um suggestions on on easing uh there's a big question um out there for many employees i think which is can we and should we push our employees to come back, even if they are uncomfortable about doing it? And where do you draw the line? Um, and how yeah. do you how do you make that decision? That's a really that's quite a big one. And that's where unions come in, isn't it? To make sure that employers have done a proper risk assessment, or it may be the case that the employer is so risk averse that they keep people everyone uh, they make everyone redundant or keep people on furlough. But I guess uh, there are certain essential jobs like run, working on the buses or the London Underground mm. that have to be kept going for key workers. And I can imagine feeling very anxious about that Yeah, as an employee. Yeah, yeah. And people on construction sites have been well publicised, I suppose, concerns about that, where it's very difficult to maintain the social distancing. Yeah. The other thing that occurred to me was um, pub people going to public-facing jobs because they like to be facing the public. They're like people. Yeah. So there's the flip side of it, which is those that are furloughed are missing that contact. Oh, that's a nice point, actually. And thinking that they may not get back to that job ever. So I guess those people need extra support. And I guess it's their employer should be uh, helping them to sort of think about volunteering opportunities to keep body and mind together. 
Yeah, I think that's 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 a really good point, and I, I have seen a lot of evidence of that. Actually, you know, organisations really making available um, more kind of online learning, but on lots of different topics. So you know, not necessarily mm. just related to your day to day work, but you know, more broadly, um, encouraging that, encouraging volunteering for people who are either furloughed or or even at work still. You know, we, um, we certainly do that. It's a great solution to the social isolation at the very least, isn't it? The volunteering, but also makes you feel a little bit less useless if you're if you're someone who's really struggles with um, that lack of structure and lack of purpose. It gives you more of a sense of control back. Your point on you know you can, you're actually doing something which is under your control. Very nice point, yeah. But also buddy systems. So mm. buddying someone up with someone else who maybe one maybe one of the buddies is. Maybe both buddies are on furlough. Maybe one's working when the other one's on furlough. But having someone who checks in on you regularly, as well as your boss, and the other one was keeping everyone in the loop, not just the people who are still working, but the people who are furloughed, so they yeah. don't feel abandoned and forgotten by their uh, bosses, by their employers. And I could see that being relevant wherever you are in the um, food chain, uh, whatever the size of company. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you, I mean, you can you can flip the the scarf model around the other way and say, well, what can we be doing for anyone who's on furlough to kind of make these factors better? So, you know, you yeah. just talked about the the relationship one, you know, how can we make sure that people are stick, you know, budding is a great example. Uh, I think it works really well. You know, continuity, how do you make sure, even if you've got nothing new to say as an organisation about what might happen next, um, You've got to keep saying it, you know, because people want to yeah. know what's coming next. Um, so, you know, that that's really important. How might you help people to feel um, a certain sense of status if they're on furlough? Um, you mm. know, you have to be a bit careful because, you know, I think part of the rules of furlough is you, you can't work. But, um, you know, within that boundary, what else could you do? And I think your you know, volunteering mm. would, would help there so, again. So I think you know that and maybe thinking about where helping people to think about where they want their career to to go so that they're a bit more future oriented yeah um yeah and they can know. use some of that time to you know at least do some um personal development towards that that goal yeah personal development and and and, and career focused uh development as well mm-hmm. both could be done during that furlough time couldn't they yeah both yeah. are equally important cool um, brilliant. We, we cover a lot of uh, ground, I think, actually. Thanks, Tim, for joining us. I think um, what I've taken away is em- empathy, really. And I love the scarf model. I have come across it, actually, but I've never had it explained so eloquently. Status, consistency, autonomy, relationships and fairness. Uh, Tim Payne, thank you uh, so thank much. You. For yeah, us. thanks, Tim. And where can we see you playing the blues next? Uh. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've got a gig booked in for October. Uh, well, uh, I think you might have to tune into Spotify. Blue Dogs. There you go. Blue Dogs. Yeah. Excellent. I'm a follower and we'll put any gigs you have, let us know and we'll put it on our Facebook page, which is followed by 1,600 people. So that's not that's not too bad. That's it for now. We have another special guest next week, um, but uh, you can find us at the usual places, can't you, Paul? Yeah, usual places. Yeah, Facebook, uh, Instagram, our website. Um, our handle is YTLF, W-H-Y-T-L-F. Let us know your experiences of furlough if you are on furlough. And we'll see you on the next one. Yeah. Thanks a lot again, Tim. And bye for now. Cheers, guys. Bye.